You're listening to Creative Confidential with Brian Tuck. Brian is an attorney who represents startups, nonprofits, arts organizations, and people who work in the creative industries. As an arts entrepreneur, Brian is the founder and CEO of Performing Arts Live, a Pennsylvania nonprofit corporation dedicated to creating and supporting live performance opportunities for jazz and electronic artists. Its flagship program is the Allentown Jazz Fest. Brian is a TEDx speaker, a Grammy voter, and jazz musician. Creative Confidential begins now. Well, this is episode five of Creative Confidential, and uh, today we're very lucky to be joined by Paul Heron, artist, musician, and author. Um, Paul is many things. He's a painter, a musician, a traveler, and a freelancer who has been successful at building a life in creative work and doing it on his terms. His large-scale paintings can be best described as abstract expressionist, but that is just one of the facets of his visual work. Paul works out of studios on both coasts, one along the Delaware River south of Easton, Pennsylvania, and the other in Venice, California. Paul, thanks very much for joining us today. Thank you. Well, I'm, you may you may take me to task on many things I say today, but uh, I will I'll do my best. Um, and and I'd met Paul in uh, in Allentown. He had just done a large uh, large scale work for one of the one of the major uh, skyscrapers that had just opened in town. And uh, flowing out of that, we had a couple of follow up meetings and visited you at the at your studio. And uh, really had a pretty wide-ranging conversation about how people can pursue a life in the creative world and uh, do it on their terms. And that's certainly one of the themes of what we're uh, trying to address uh, in the podcast here. So, um, you know, maybe if you could just tell the audience who is not familiar with your work, um, you know, how how you – where, what your origins were when you when you started when you realized that uh, this is what you wanted to do uh, for a living. It wasn't a matter of deciding I wanted to do it for a living, but I was more or less driven to do it since about five years old. I mean, you couldn't keep me in enough paper and crayons, and so that was the very beginning of it. And. When people recognize that kind of uh, dedication, they encourage you. So all along the way, I've been encouraged to go further and go further, and um, and so I and so I do. Now, did you find that encouragement through? I mean. Uh, through family more or through the school system? Well, somewhat, just given, given the age. I mean, as when you're very young, of course, your family, that is your first source of encouragement. But what happened after that is school teachers began to recognize um, the commitment there. And so school teachers would recognize it. And then they would encourage also that I would go on to study in addition to whatever classes that they had had, that I would take extra study. And at the time I was growing up, they had a program by which gifted students would go to Saturday classes. So from the time I was in 
seventh grade, I guess it was, from seventh through twelfth grade, I had been going to Saturday classes, which was from, I think, eight o'clock in the morning till noontime every Saturday. And, and so that was the beginning of it all. And of course, the more dedicated I began to be, the more people recognize this and you begin to produce things that people, they have certain wow factors. And so they, they see it, they wow. And, you know, that does really good things for a young person in terms of self-confidence. And so you continue to try to do better and do better. So that was the name of the game. That's how the whole thing began for me. Now, where where did you go to elementary school? If if we're back at that time of your life, where 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 was that? I went to um, elementary school in Bethlehem up until about third grade, and then I moved to a little town um, in Saucon Valley named Hellertown, and I went to I was in the Hellertown School District, Saucon Valley School District, and. I think when I was in third grade, I had won first prize in a National Heart Association poster competition. So, and I was competing against people that were a little bit older than I was. So that was one of the first marks of self-confidence and achievement that continue to be encouraged. And and as you're telling me that, I'm I'm thinking about how much more difficult. It is now, like in today's climate, with the way arts funding, not just visual arts, but whether it's performing arts, dance, or, or what have you, is is coming out of, of public school budgets. And I, I would be hard-pressed to think of having any school district, you know, whether it's locally or in the Midwest or West Coast, that are, that are holding, you know, Saturday courses um, – you know, I, I hope I'm wrong on I hope I'm wrong on that, but I know locally I, I don't think there are those kinds of programs anymore. I don't believe I don't believe there are those kind of programs, but the whole the whole thing has changed. I mean, the whole paradigm has completely switched because there's been this idea of inclusion rather than exceptionalism. Um, if you were at one time exceptional at something, you were recognized as being exceptional. And it seems like today everybody needs to be exceptional. And so the, the idea, I mean, it's almost impossible if you think about it. Well, it's um, the old saying, if everybody is special, then no one is special. Precisely. Right. And I think that that's the point that we're coming to, that we have so much, um, pedestrian sort of imagery or um, art stuff, that there's not the kind of thing that stands out above it, that, you know, people, people are having more and more difficulty trying to recognize what truly is exceptional. That's compounded by the fact that we're completely inundated with imagery today, everywhere you look, there's logos even sitting in this room. I mean, I'm seeing about 10 different logos. I'm, you know, I'm seeing reflections of things. I'm seeing branding products. Um, that's everywhere today. Now, if you put yourself 30 years ago, 40 years ago, 
it was not quite that much. So I think that today, particularly with iPhone, with the you know ease of using telephones to take photographs or videos, I think that imagery is just everywhere. And that is getting to be a problem, but it, it creates a greater problem for the artist because the artist has to almost see it from, from the sky down and take the overview. And the more and more imagery, it's almost like water, if you would. Water has a way of behaving. So what the artist really needs to recognize today is the way imagery does behave. It's not so much the individual image, but it's the way images behave collectively. It's the matrix of design. And if you think about that, the early art that we appreciate is some of the art from the Renaissance period. I mean, that's a, a common denominator that most of us could affiliate ourselves with. And it's the study of people, the study of figures, and very advanced study, um, landscapes. And they put these things together, they put these uh, compositions together so that you could understand what the scene is. Now, that is only covering one period of history. But now if you look in the 20th century, in the early 21st century, we have this total inundation of imagery. And now we look at that and we try to figure out the design composition of that imagery. The, what, what is the true matrix behind that that is operational at this point in time? That's the responsibility of the visual artist. Do you find that um, the with iPads and 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 digital tools being widely available, where you can you can download an app like Paper, and I I know you you have have experimented with with you know digital works that have been prepared on iPads and and but actually physically printed on you know, on aluminum, I, I think we, when we talked last, do you think that, uh, something you had said there jogged my memory about, um, sort of a, a sentiment that, you know, it used to be, you could find letters that your grandparents had written to one another and there'd actually, you'd, you know, you'd open a box and there would be a physical, you know, representation of, of them in in a way where you know they at at some point their pen touched that paper and that was a a very tactile connection with with those people from the past now with almost all of our communication being digital that's not going to happen anymore and do you find that with the younger you know younger generation of artists that that's also a risk where you know, we may have fewer tangible representations of, of, of I, I, you can't really call them paintings if they only exist on a screen, I don't think. But that's, I guess, for everybody, you know, I guess that's for the viewer to decide what it, what it is. But, um, you know, do you, do you find that is also a pressure on, on the artistic community? I just think it's a new tool. It's just another tool that's available. 
And it's like any tool comes out, you know, if a pair of pliers is just invented today, it's like, oh my goodness, you know, we could use this pair of pliers to get the ketchup lid off and we could use this pair of pliers to pull a tooth or, you know, and you find all kinds of uses and you just use it until the novelty of the thing sort of wears out. And then there becomes a functionality of the tool, you know, necessary functionality. I find that the technology today is it's wonderful, but nothing is an end all. You know, history will tell you that. But um, you know, nothing is is the ultimate solution to any problem. And so, when I see the iPad drawings. I mean, when I first saw an exhibition, I mean, I've been doing iPad drawings myself for many, many years, but I think it was about two years ago I'd seen an exhibition at the L.A. Louvre Gallery in Venice, California by an artist named David Hockney. Now, David is a British artist that does landscapes and a very an accomplished painter, but he had begun to do these things on iPad and he did them well, but they didn't seem to have the sort of presence that I'd like to see in a painting. So I continued to do my pieces until they had the attributes that are necessary for me to call something a piece of artwork. And, and so I used it. But technology in general, um, as I see it, you know, it's a tool that that provides more creativity, not less. It's just whether you get so enraptured by the novelty of something or whether you actually think about the functionality. One of the wonderful things about technology today is that I could bring my computer or my iPhone or whatever it is that I'm using, I could bring it anywhere. And if I have a question... You know, I'll ask Siri or I'll Google it, and my answers are at my fingertips. Whereas before, it would require trips to the library, and I would then have to turn the pages and smell the paper and smell the history of the book. You know, sometimes encyclopedias that were in libraries were there for many years, and they had, you know, the they were stained on the edges from people turning pages. And there was a certain charm about all that. And there was a certain connection to the past. But the way energy or the way information is almost compounding every couple of mm -hmm. years, yep. you can't keep an encyclopedia um, for more than a few years. So the digital archiving of information, I think it's a valuable tool. I do, in fact, really like the idea of opening, like you said, a, a letter and the smell of the paper, the smell perhaps of the perfume or your grandmother's perfume that is still there, that lingers. Um, and though she may not be there, the paper that she wrote on, the connection that she had made with that paper, maybe the smell of the paper, her perfume, maybe the smell of the house. Maybe it was a coal-heated house and the, the paper had a little bit of a, a nuance of you know, that coal flavor to it. That's part of what makes the art beautiful. 
those are the attributes of quality that become almost sublime and ineffable. And technology could actually help us to get to that point on a different level. We're ready for that level in the 20th century. Just like recording music, when we went to digital recording as opposed to the wax recordings, the LPs and so forth, everybody complained about the sound um, being sacrificed, you know, the environmental sound of the recording. And that is true. But that actually puts engineers to work harder to try to reproduce whatever the environment was. Mm -hmm. Now, I just recently tried out some speakers, you know, because I was performing with some people. And I'd heard that Pat Metheny had gotten these Bose speakers that he placed in different areas of the room. And he actually improvised with the sound coming out of the speaker. And it was really... It's a great concept because he's actually working with the sound. The way I used to do back in the 60s, if I were playing guitar with somebody and you know, if I was jamming, I'd be on the bass and I'd be a guitar player. But it was the sound of that guitar player in the room with mm -hmm. me, the sound yeah. coming from that amplifier that made the magic happen. Well, in, in a lot of old recording techniques, you would you know, determine the instrument's uh, presence in the mix by how far away it was from the mic. So a lot of those old, you know, doo-wop records and stuff from the you know, early Johnny Cash area era, excuse me. Um, you know, you have one mic set up in the middle of the room. The drum set might be in the back. The bass player might be a little bit closer, and the singer's right on top of the thing. And that's how they did all that. Um, you know, and I know there's engineers up. You know. Uh, Local to us, uh, on the, we're in. I don't want to say rural Pennsylvania. It kind of is on occasion, but uh, you know where a recording studio that I'd used in Nazareth, where everything's recorded digitally. The masters are then run through a Sony half-inch tape, and then we take that—not we, but the engineer, uh, a guy named uh, Jim McGee at uh, Spectre Sound in uh, in Nazareth. Um, and then he takes the 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 quote unquote analog version of the recording and then runs it back into Pro Tools. So it really warms up, you know, the 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 final product. But sure. uh, but it's using the new all the new stuff, the latest you know re release of iTunes or of uh, Pro Tools and, uh, and 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 all the rest of it. So um, you know, with with respect to you know, with with respect to the visual arts and, and kind of back to this technology rant that we're on here, you know, who do you see that's up and coming that you that catch that has caught your eye or that you've noticed as, you know, boy, that, you know, that one person really has potential well, or is currently doing, you know, great stuff. That you think well, is. I don't I think that I'm not really seeing a lot of people that I could say that about. Um, the people that have maintained their aesthetic principles and continue to work through the developments of technology, a lot of those people have 
developed some really wonderful techniques and approaches to painting um, in the visual arts. And I, I'll use painting as my primary reference to the visual arts, but I don't see a lot of young people. I, I think that there, there seems to be so much concern for invention and exposure that there doesn't seem to be as much concern for identifying and developing one's own voice. And without a voice and without a language that is truly your own, it's very difficult to express the creative ideas that may be going on in your head. So what I see a lot of, and this is what is actually more interesting to me, what I see a lot of is a lot of mundane. And it's at a, a level that I don't know where it's being generated from. Um, well, and, and something you, you had just said about um, people's, you know, younger people's perceived need for exposure at, at all costs. I mean, um, I, I hate to keep going back to the music idiom, but, um, you know, people will release anything. It could be a sketch. It could be a half-written song. It could be a, a 30 seconds of something that isn't well-produced. Oh, sure. And there's not, um, you know, the kind of need to release a completely finished and engineered product and say, okay, this, this five and a half minutes or four minutes, you know, this has some integrity to it. And I think this represents my best work versus here's 20 outtakes of, uh, you know, of whatever recording session. And, um, I mean, how, how does that manifest itself in, in the visual arts world? Is it is it Instagram? Is it is it Twitter or is it Facebook? Well, how would you how would you as an as a as a young painter, how would you continually put out um, your work without it really being done? I mean, that really seems to be kind of this ethos that's very pervasive. Well, I, I think just the whole, I think there's a whole lot of assumptions that are made. I mean, if you really define what an art is, um, and if people were responsible, I think that. That's a big F. You know, yeah. Well, I, I think <laughs> yeah. that if people really looked at what the definition of art was, paid homage to the people, the League of Giants that preceded us and looked at the lives that were dedicated to make contributions to this thing called art. It wasn't about getting 10,000 pieces out there or getting $10,000 for a piece. It was about everybody has to make a living, certainly, but that wasn't the priority. The priority was that you received a gift and this gift was, you know, you don't know where this gift came from. But it's certainly a gift that makes an individual unique from another individual. And, and there's a responsibility that comes with that gift. And to try to cherish it and to try to develop it and to try to make it into something that becomes this thing that could actually enter into the arena of art 
not even be art yet, but it could at least enter into the arena of judgment as to whether it is art. Not the supposition that, well, okay, I, I did this in 10 minutes and here it is. I'm going to put it out in a gallery or I'm going to put it up on on social media and I'm going to spread it around and, you know, hopefully everybody's going to see it. And Well, so what? You know, it just seems like it's a lot of... Um, a lot of pointless energy, entropy. Right. Well, and you, and that inadvertently, I think, makes it more difficult for those same people to not. And, and I'm not saying that everything has to derive. You have to derive economic, you know, benefit from everything you do. That's not the point. Um, like we had Steve Coleman. Uh, on a, on an earlier episode. And, uh, I think he took me to task a little bit as he should have about, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to compose music, whether a hundred people hear it or zero people hear it. That's what I do. That's what I am. So, but with respect to having, um, a flood of work out there, whether it's visual or music or, or what have you, I think the people that are doing that are unknowingly making their own lives harder because if you are kind of blinded by choice as a consumer, you're less likely to pay value for something that's worthwhile. And as a result, am I off base here? Or, or well, you're or, not. You know, you're not off base. I mean, my the way I've been thinking about things is as well as and. You know, you are as right as well as I am right about this. And there's there's any number of ways to look at it um, in a culture that's so multifaceted. Um, but, you know, again, I mean, I would make my art whether somebody saw it or they didn't see it. And I would have done that from the very beginning. I mean, that was a commitment I made. I mean, I knew I wanted to be an artist before I knew what an artist was. I knew that I could draw, and I, and I drew well. I could draw those things that I thought about. I could draw those things that I could see. And so I conceptualized, I could, I could represent, and then I could form concepts and form a method of communication with my voice, with, the, with my style, my technique that people could identify with. But I think it's getting more and more difficult to for people to recognize, for audiences to recognize legitimacy because of all the distraction that's around. Um, there seems to be a, there doesn't seem to be in our culture um, a method by which things are really judged, a criteria of quality in the arts. It just seems to be that if you could draw, you could be an artist, and that's really not it. Um, being an artist is something, as Steve Coleman, as you probably gleaned from talking to Steve, being an artist is something that is something quite different from just being able to play an instrument or being able to draw. There were two things that really jumped out at me. Um, one was that 
in order for there to be any perception of what is uh, what what is art or what is what is good at least there i i think this used to be easier years ago where there had to be someone to tell everybody there had to be a critic or someone that was a bellwether of in any given field where you know if 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 you got a good review from you know critic x or or critic y that it had a certain weight to it because people thought okay well that person's got you know knows what they're talking about um and and these days with sort of everything flooding out all over the place and people who are you know trying to find a new you know new rock band to listen to or, or a new painter or a new playwright or, or whomever because there's content all over the place it's it's much much harder to weed through everything and you know find those things that would have been you know special to you so um at least in in the music world you know playlists with with spotify and pandora and all these other services have really taken on this meaning because people are starting to follow um, you know, certain people who whose playlists have a lot of followers and they they become sort of like curators of, you know, a certain sensibility. Like, you know, this person might know hip hop or this person might know jazz or what have you. Let me see what they pick this week. And then as a result, that's the doorway through, you know, in which people kind of experience things. Which was no different from, you know, 30 years ago, just switching the station. Right. You know, you turn on FM if you wanted to hear, you know, there were certain radio stations that played acid rock, certain radio stations that played soul, and you knew what they were, so you'd flip it. So it's no different, really. It's just that the um, the uh, the device by which people are using it, there's things about it that become more important, like the number of followers or mm -hmm. who cared who was listening to the radio, you know, before it's like, if you were listening to it, you were hip to it and you didn't, you didn't know, need to know that there were 14,000 right. other people that were hip. Well, but also in, in like, if you look at television, you know, there used to be three or four major networks. Mm -hmm. Now there's, you know, on any basic cable package, you have at least a hundred, you know, choices. So how many do you watch? Hardly any. Three. I mean, you know, maybe you know when when I get a block of time, I, yeah. I go okay. I can get caught up on a show that was on ten years ago because yeah. uh, uh, running around too much. But um, you know, in how does that translate to the visual arts world? Well, I, I think it's the same thing. I think that there are, you know, galleries just by the droves. I mean, I, I, one time I could probably name all the galleries that were in New York that were worthy of even going into. And those that weren't worthy of going into were kind of like the slop shops. And why bother going into those? It was just, you know, some kind of commercial enterprise that was, you know, trying to make them make money by selling whatever they were selling. But um, now there's such a prolifer proliferation of those kind of galleries that it's so hard to find 
galleries that are out there that are capable of surviving and galleries that are out there that have gallery keepers that understand what they're talking about. But there's lots of galleries and there's lots of artwork in all these galleries. And and you just have described, I think, in another way, what we were talking about with Spotify, where, you know, if each playlist is a gallery and now there's 150 of them, uh, you need some way to figure out, OK, this, you know, these 10 galleries are worthwhile. The rest is right. not, not. And And you know what? Critics, you know, what you used to rely upon previously, um, an art critic or, you know, some endorsement, those things are commodities today. You know, who's who's buying the most advertisement for the newspaper? Um, those that are getting the most advertising space are getting the most paragraphs. And, and so business is done at that level. So what is the true art form here? Is it the... Is it capitalism that's the true art form or is it the forms that the art actually takes in the galleries, in the context? Um, I'm not sure. Do you, do you think that with the the way we continually see record-setting prices at Sotheby's and – and, and these uh, now we're talking about something different. Okay. Now we're talking about well, now we're talking about Sotheby's and Christie's and places like that 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 are auction houses that mm -hmm. that are that are, are selling objects from a period of time um, that that have an intrinsic value that have relevance to history and a relevance to an art historical period. There's a, it's a continuity from the beginning of time, from the caves of Lascaux to Anselm Kiefer's paintings in the Louvre or Cy Twombly's paintings on the, on the roof or the ceiling of the Louvre. There's a continuity from the very beginning about what it is the, the artist is trying to do and places like Christie's places like Sotheby's represent a lot of art that is about that, about that lineage. And so there's getting to be less and less of it. And so there's getting to be more and people, more and more people that recognize that there is a value to it. And and so the prices just continue to skyrocket, and they will continue to skyrocket. I don't see a lot of what's going on today as having the same kind of intrinsic value. There's social relevance to what's going on today, but I'm not too sure that it has the broader um, appeal that art from other periods had had. So is it a is it a new phenomenon or is this a continuation of what has always happened where uh, you know where what I guess what you'd read in the general newspapers as fine art has become an investment let me asset read, let me just I, read I, I, that was a softball for, that was yeah. <laughs> uh, hanging right over the plate you get it let me read something i don't know the author of this um 
But it says artists of the Middle Ages and Renaissance were largely preoccupied with teaching the lessons of the Bible to the illiterate with the mediums that served as visual aids of their time. Their role in society was explicit and secure. Their work was both necessary and honorable, almost holy, since it was recognized as God's work. Gradually, their function diminished with the invention of the printing press, the decline of religion, and finally the advent of the camera. By the 20th century, artists were no longer performing a unique role. The creation of images, which filled a deeply felt need of their culture, and which they alone could provide. Inevitably, many people began to view their work as primarily decorative, a cosmetic of society rather than food for the soul. More recently, the artist has been assigned still more demeaning role, the production of artifacts which can be exploited by the art world, that is, the dealers, critics, fashionable collectors, and spectators. So, that is the art that I'm talking about, and that it's like the diminishing value. But it's not that the art itself is diminishing, or even the the want the wanting to be an artist is diminished. It's the hubris of the population that really creates that diminishing role. I I don't know what more you could say <laughs> on that. Um, I, we have so much ground to cover. There's, we do. There's, we're probably back for parts two and three at some point, uh, very soon. This will be an encyclopedia. Yeah. This will be uh heron on modern trends volume one. So, um, well, if, um, if you're curious about Paul's work and you, you certainly should be after this, um, please visit his website. It's paulherron.com. There will be a link to it on the webpage, but the address is uh, paul, P-A-U-L-H-A-R-R-Y-N.com, just like it sounds. And uh, look him up. He's uh, well well worth your time, and uh, we'll definitely uh, do a couple more conversations because I don't even think we got to the first thing on our list. Not the first question. (laughs) That we talked about. So, uh, Paul, thank you so much. Thank you, Brian. All right. We'll talk to you again soon. Thanks for listening to Creative Confidential with Brian Tuck. To have Brian consult for your arts organization or public speaking engagements, or if you have legal matters you want to discuss, contact him at tucklaw.com. That's T-U-K-Law.com. For future episodes, please subscribe to Creative Confidential on iTunes or visit us at creativeconfidential.net. This has been a Steve Mittman social media creation. Creation. Steve Mittman, socialmedia.com.